0: Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. I'm the Compliance Evangelist, and I'd like to welcome you to This Week in FCPA. First, a word from our sponsor, Affiliated Monitors. Founded in 2004, Affiliated Monitors provides professional, independent integrity monitoring and ethics and compliance assessments nationally and internationally and across almost all industries. With its knowledge of effective ethics and compliance programs and cultures, Affiliated Monitor is respected for its work as the corporate monitor on matters ranging from multinational corporations to small and mid-sized companies and even individuals. Having served in over 750 monitorships, no one has more experience as an independent monitor than the team at Affiliated Monitor's. For more information on how an independent monitor can help improve your company's ethics and compliance program, visit our sponsor, Affiliated Monitors, at www.affiliatedmonitors.com. Some of the stories we look at this week are Dave LaFort's top 10 takeaways from Compliance Week 2019, Jeff Kaplan on why ethics matters at the top, how the UN Convention Against Corruption can help Mozambique recover funds stolen through corruption, and OFAC enforcement actions that intrigue Matt Kelly on the French of why pre-acquisition due diligence from the compli- compliance perspective is now critical. Jay Rosen continues his series on how much on uh, monitorships with an article on how much monitorships cost. Mike Volkov takes a deep dive into your investigative protocol by auditing it. Why is visibility key for compliance? And Sitco now as a part of the Pedevesa Venezuelan corruption scandal. Finally, we conclude with Is there a legal duty to have an appropriate tone at the top for compliance and ethics? Fascinating exploration. This Week in FCPA is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. And now, C-Suite Radio. Hello, everyone. Tom Fox, back with Jay Rosen, Mr. Monitors, for This Week in FCPA, episode 156, for the week ending May 31, 2019, the Farewell to May edition. Jay, if you weren't aware, let me tell you that the Houston Astros still have the best record in baseball, uh, so uh, they didn't sweep the Red Sox. They only won four of the last six. So, uh, you know, a little bit of a downer there. We didn't get the sweep, but hey, our heads are still held high. But we had a lot of great uh, stories this week, so you want to just jump right into it?
1: Let's go for it. Uh, you're recently back from the gathering of the tribe in D.C. for Compliance Week. So uh, what, kind of, uh, what kind of feedback do you have from the folks who attended?
0: So a couple of things. Uh, first of all, uh, Dave LaFort, the uh, editor-in-chief at Compliance Week, put together a great sort of wrap-up from his perspective. Dave is a journalist by heart uh, from your part of the world, uh, ESPN and Beantown. And, but uh, So he's not a compliance practitioner, so it's always great when he uh, kind of weighs in because he has such a different perspective on things. And he had a top 10 of uh, highlights for himself, including the DOJ's uh, policy preview of the leniency program under the antitrust division, Christy Grant Hart's keynote, Wei Chin's uh, keynote, um, the keynote by Preet Bharaha, uh uh, the keynote around uh, psychology and uh, compliance, uh, behavioral ethics, uh, the impact of cannabis legislation on corporate uh, compliance programs, cybersecurity, and a decision tree for compliance. I was lucky enough to sit down with uh, the co host of Great Women in Compliance, Mary Shirley, Lisa Fine, and we were joined by our, our colleague Amy Bernard Bond. Uh, to do a podcast on our reflections of the conference. We posted, uh, cross-posted that podcast this this past week on the Great Women in Compliance and FCPA Compliance Report. So, some good stuff around the uh, Compliance Week conference um, uh, that we've linked to, Jay.
1: Perfect. So, uh, Next up, I have um, an article coming from Jeff Kaplan in his Conflict of Interest blog, and uh, everybody knows about Tone at the Top, but in this article, Jeff is writing about the toll at the top, and uh, recently there was a PWC uh, report done, and 39% of 89 CEOs who were uh, interviewed Uh, or or, or that they focused on who departed jobs in 2018 left for reasons related to unethical behavior stemming from allegations of sexual misconduct or ethical laxes connected to things like fraud, bribery, and insider training. So uh, this is – that's a pretty big number, 40 percent of 89, and uh, basically there are – five issues that were identified in a recent Harvard Law School corporate governance blog, and what companies should be looking at doing is uh, making sure that sexual misconduct risk is specifically enumerated and oversight is assigned to a board committee. The board should have expertise in workplace and employee issues. There should be material penalties in place for perpetrators and abettors. Executive compensation structures at a minimum should contain incentives for creating safe and equitable workplace. And the company should model the behavior that it seeks to promote. So um, this might be uh, a new thing to be talking about the toll at the top, but uh, it just kind of keeps capping off what we talk about. Unfortunately uh, week to week and month to month that there are people out there who are not playing by the rules and uh, it just makes our job even more important.
0: So the um, let me just say, uh, uh, Jay, that uh, this article really hit on several uh, really important topics. But it's multiple topics. You uh, articulated the uh, the need for uh, robust oversight, but it's also having a safe space to, to raise your hand and speak up, having people that will listen, having an investigative function that takes these matters seriously investigating, uh, having that oversight uh, committee that you mentioned, but also delivering discipline, uh, in the form of, uh, uh, this report noted, uh, multiple CEOs, uh, had, uh, or senior managers in the C-suite had to leave companies, not because of negative financial performance. And I really think it speaks to the overall, uh, impact of not just me too, but, uh, compliance, uh, compliance functions. We're going to detail a little bit later, uh, uh on an article from Mike Bolkov, I think an ancillary part of this, which is auditing your investigative program, but really a lot to unpack. And I was frankly stunned that um um the number of people uh was so much higher who had left corporations for this reason as opposed to negative financial results.
1: So we've got another story last week. We went down to Mozambique and uh what's the update? So um Uh,
0: Mozambique is in a world of hurt because of bribery and corruption of bonds floated to purchase or build a tuna fleet. Uh, And although Charlie the tuna is glad that it didn't work out, the country of Mozambique is much worse for the wear with the original uh, loans of 2.2 billion and uh, projected losses with penalties and interest for non-payment of up to 10 billion. And this is with a country with a uh, total GDP of uh, 12 billion so you can see the problem uh it turns out that uh the united nations convention against corruption may offer a uh, some bit of help uh rick messick writing in the global anti corruption blog points out that under the uh un convention against corruption a government can directly recover much if not all through article 53 which requires any signatory uh to the convention grant uh, a petitioning party a right to civil action to recover property acquired through offenses defined in the convention uh, obviously this includes bribery and corruption so this could really open up a new front of international litigation as regime change brings not only increased scrutiny around bribery and corruption but attempts by new governments uh, to uh, obtain or or or, or Uh, recover funds that were uh, illegally, unethically, and criminally purloined from their countries, whether that be through theft, whether it be through bribery and corruption, or as in the case of uh, Mozambique, uh, fraudulent floating of bonds.
1: So uh, next up, we've got something from our good friend in Boston, Matt Kelly at Radical Compliance. And uh, we're taking a look at a recent action against State Street Corporation that was received from the Office of Foreign Assets Control on Tuesday. OFAC cited State Street for violating Iran sanctions because the bank acted as a custodian for a customer's retirement plan and processed $11,365 worth of pension payments to the customer, a U.S. citizen, while he was residing in Iran in the 2010s. Uh, On one hand, OFAC did not impose any monetary penalty against State Street because the bank used screening software that found the suspicious payment, and they self-reported the transactions to the compliance staff. The issue that you had is there were two different divisions at State Street, and one division, the retiree services staff, used its own sanctioned screening filter instead of that of State Street centralized sanctioned screening filters. So basically um, it's, I guess on one hand they're saying it's good that they caught the suspicious payment, but on the other hand, uh, State Street did not understand that it had problems that the bank needed to correct. Above all, it streamlined the escalation procedure so that when a sanctions risk now does emerge, It goes to the compliance professional with enough expertise and authority to resolve the question properly. So uh, the other important lesson that Matt takes from this is that the enforcement action is simply that OFAC took action at all. It's a sign that OFAC is indeed looking at transactions like this, which exists almost entirely in the U.S. legal and regulatory system. So Matt usually has a, a very keen eye at looking at some of these, um, uh, more fintech solutions. And, uh, it just shows that I think OFAC is going to be more vigilant on this going forward. Any takeaways, Tom?
0: Yeah, a couple, Jay, in addition to the point you raised, uh, I was a little troubled by the discussion around having the business unit involved, the specific business unit involved, uh, the criticism for its compliance function and its compliance program. Because on the one hand, if you want to operationalize your compliance program, that would seem to mitigate against or argue at least against having a centralized compliance function. But here, the uh, operationalized compliance function completely failed. And indeed, the business unit where uh, these OFAC infractions occurred, the compliance function actually approved uh, the, uh, a very large number of transactions. So the question becomes, or at least I would hope they did a root cause analysis to try to determine how could the business unit compliance function screw up so badly. Um, it was a clear knowledge within the bank that this was illegal conduct. Uh, and does this mean we're now going to move back towards or pull back from an operationalized compliance function to a more centralized compliance function? I've worked in companies where compliance was absolutely centralized in the corporate office. There are strengths to that, but there are also weaknesses. And the one of the, some of the weaknesses led to the notion of operationalizing your compliance program. But if we're going to pull back from that now, uh, I think that's, that's going to have to be an ongoing and continued conversation,
1: Jay. So next up, Tom, we go to our good friends in France, and um, they always have some interesting things to say about M&A transactions. So what is happening with the French anti-corruption authority, the AFA?
0: So uh, actually, Jay, I would have to say the French have never said anything interesting about compliance and connection with M&A, and that's what makes this article so interesting. Um, and found in the uh, compliance and enforcement blog, the most excellent blog from the New York University program on corporate compliance and ethics entitled French Anti-Corruption Authority raises alarm about M&A transactions. And the French Anti-Corruption Agency or Authority, AFA, um did exactly what you said. They raised a uh, uh, raised the uh, alarm about M&A and that there needs to be robust pre-acquisition due diligence and of course, post-acquisition uh, investigation uh, to determine if there are any corruption violations. Um, in the simple words, the AFA's pitch boiled down to French companies do not uh, do investigate target companies and if you find something wrong pre or post closing, come and talk to us early so we can take care of the situation or you may face the Department of Justice or the serious fraud office. So that's a that's a pretty strong statement. But uh, Jay, the thing that struck me is the glowing the growing international recognition of the need for robust compliance around the entire spectrum of MA, from the pre-acquisition, due diligence, through closing, to integration, to post-acquisition, forensic investigation, and the notification of authorities if uh, something is askance. Because as I always say, if a company was engaging in bribery and corruption before you bought them, and they continue to engage in bribery and corruption after you have closed the deal, it is no longer they, it is now you who are violating the law. So uh, I thought this was a pretty significant uh, announcement from the French authorities and really shows the internationalization of not simply uh, anti-bribery, anti-corruption enforcement, but uh, compliance programs as well.
1: So are we supposed to portend that there should be some announcement coming out soon about uh, – a French violator? Do you think that happens? Or do you think this was just put out there uh, in a vacuum?
0: No, we're going to change the name of Freedom Fries back to French fries, though.
1: Yoo-hoo. All right. So uh, number six comes back to me. This is uh, part five in my series about everything you always wanted to know about a monitor but were afraid to ask. And, we, and I take a look this week uh, on my column in Corporate Compliance Insights about how much will a corporate monitorship cost. And uh, you know, basically, this is an area that tends to be quite confusing to certain people. And there are some certain factors that you can look at to get some certainty on what the cost will be. Uh, first of all, you want to look at the scope of the monitorship. And uh, you need to understand the settlement documents so that you can fully appreciate the scope of the monitor's remit and what the government expects from the monitor. Um, The next thing you want to look at is the frequency of engagement. How often will the monitor actually be interacting with your business units? Is this going to be a daily, weekly, or quarterly basis? And also, what is the exact duration? of the uh, term. And that, again, is usually listed in your settlement agreement. Next, you want to look at the experience of the monitor and not specifically the experience in one vertical, but their experience and actually running a monitorship. And uh, then this be, these next two points become kind of critical. One is about cost control in the work plan. So that really needs to be agreed upon before you move out. And the last part is selective sampling. So If you've done a lot of these uh, monitor ships, like affiliated monitor ships, uh, affiliated monitors, we've done over 750 of them, you get a pretty good idea of what you need to check. So you don't have to look under every rock and you really can do sampling. And if you do find an issue that's a little bit more troubling, you can always dive in deeper. But by minimizing the scope, By looking at the frequency and looking at the experience of your monitor, you can really have a good idea how to uh, constrain costs.
0: Next up, Tom. Uh, Yet another former Petavesa or Petavesa related corruption case. And um, I don't want to downplay this, Jay, uh, although it is uh, now the 21st individual indictment and or uh, – conviction slash guilty plea of defendants charged in connection with uh, bribery uh, in and around Petavesa. I guess we've had 16 guilty pleas and five are under indictment. Jay, the thing that struck me here as extraordinarily significant was that in addition to bribes paid directly to PDVSA officials, there were bribes paid to CITCO, uh employees. Now, Citco is based in Houston. Uh, it seems like to me they've got a uh, some placard or something up around Fenway Park in the back of my mind, um, like a small six-by-four or something. Maybe you can help me with that, but um, uh, something there. Uh, but now we have the situation where if if this is correct and we have the businessman admitting the FCPA fences uh, that – bribes paid to a U.S. company for the basis of corruption involving Petavesa. And this opens up Citgo to an absolute world of hurt. Uh, First of all, uh, now, uh, if you work for Citgo and you're listening to this and you still work there, I would not walk but run to the Securities and Exchange Commission and tell them what you know because you're going to need some serious whistleblower protection. And Citgo may be in for a very long and lengthy investigation. Uh, but if, uh, I mean, if you're the SEC or the Department of Justice, uh, uh, you need to start investigating Sitco now. Uh, but once again, the difference, Jay, is this is an American company, uh, not a payment of bribes by an American or other to a foreign government official, a payment of bribes to an American to garner a benefit on a foreign government official. And that really uh, changes, I think, the entire dynamics of the PDVSA investigation. I don't know how closely you follow economic sanctions against the Venezuela, but that's a huge issue here in Texas. Citco is a uh, – in spite of the fact they've got their placard in Boston, they're a, uh, a Texas-based corporation, and there's, I think, three to 4,000 employees in Texas who work for Citgo, literally from gas station attendants all the way up to uh, the corporate office. And now uh, this entire company may go under investigation. Uh, and in the sanctions which the, this administration has carved Citgo out of the sanctions against Venezuela, even though Citgo is owned by Penevase 100 uh, percent, they may come down on Sitco like a ton of bricks if it turns out that Sitco has been facilitating uh, corruption uh, by Petrovista, uh, whether that corruption is money laundering, evasion of sanctions, or plain old payment of bribes under the FCPA. But I really think this opens up an entirely new front, and uh, I think uh, if you're a stockholder of Sitco and you're listening to this, you know I, I would think uh, it's time to sell.
1: Totally. So. um this uh, next story comes to us um, again from the FCPA blog uh, by Elsa Chan. And more banks behaving badly. And in a four month span, there have been four scandals involving at least $2 trillion in money being laundered across the world. Uh, some of these we've spoken about before Danske Bank, um, Troika. Swede Bank, and now the newest uh, member of banks behaving badly, is Standard Chartered. Uh, having the right information at the right time can be the linchpin to catching some of these. And uh, a big number that is out there is financial institutions spend an estimated $25.3 billion, with a B, on anti-money laundering compliance across the U.S. And part of this is... Um, as we've talked about in the past is you need to get additional information uh, and data such as ultimate beneficial ownership. And um, one of the things that may or may not be limiting the effectiveness in this is organizations need to take a look towards increasing or in sharing information between financial institutions. They need to focus on the obvious Often organizations get stuck using legacy technology. And finally, if organizations are to safeguard their reputations and increase efficiencies across compliance department, they need to look to empower the compliance team. So there is no silver bullet, but there is indeed a need for smarter data and not just faster than tech. So um, a lot of these informations come down to us Uh, having the right technology uh, at our hands, and uh, hopefully, uh, according to Elsa Chen, that if companies make these changes, they can be more efficient in weeding out these bad situations. Uh, Next up, Tom, we've got an article from uh, the Harvard Law School Forum on Corporate Governance and Financial Regulation. And uh, what about management's duty to set the right tone at the top?
0: So uh, before we get to that, Jay, I um, I wanted to highlight a, a multi-part, multi-blog part series by Mike Volkoff, who's run this week, and I and I, I alluded to it uh, earlier. Uh, but he took a look at uh, auditing your investigative protocol, and uh, this is not something you know that really gets a lot of, of uh, play, but. Um, it should. And in the three-part series, Mike uh, details uh, uh, in uh, part, specifically part two, the information that you need to audit, how you need to put it together, how you need to review it. And then in part three, he talks about remediation. So it's a great three-part series. And uh, I'm not sure I've ever seen an audit program or audit protocol around your investigative protocol. So uh, this is uh, really uh, great nuts and bolts stuff uh, from Mike. Yeah, so... I really wanted to spend a little time on this article, Jay, because this has huge implications uh, for not only compliance officers and compliance practitioners, but corporations as well. So the background of this case is uh, Hertz uh, in May 2014 announced it couldn't file its uh, 10Q because it identified errors in its financial statements and ended up having to restate uh, financials in 2015 for the years 2011, 2012, and 2013. It terminated its uh, former CEO, former CFO, former general counsel, and former group president in in part because of these uh, financial uh, restatements. And Hertz is seeking to recoup or claw back certain bonus payments that were made to these executives for hitting their numbers. So far, so good. So far, really nothing new uh, in that. But what is new, Jay, is that the allegation is that <clears throat> not that the officers violated their fiduciary duties, um, because those claims would have been covered by D&O insurance. Hertz is specifically uh, seeking recoupment of monies for uh, engaging in conduct that constituted willful gross negligence or gross misconduct with regard to their duties and those duties include setting an appropriate tone at the top so what we have here is a company trying to utilize one of the great compliance maxims and make it a legal duty uh so does an officer have that duty and is it legally cognizable uh to set a tone at the top to the extent such a duty exists what's the source of that duty what's the content of that duty how does that duty compare to the Caremark duty of directors? Uh, does uh, failure to satisfy that duty amount to gross negligence? Uh, how do you measure that? Uh, how do you assess that? And what obligations does the board have respect to tone at the top? These are just some of the questions posed by this litigation. And this is really going to be interesting. If the court allows this to go forward, and I have to emphasize if, meaning it'll have to pass a motion for summer judgment, it's in Delaware State Court, then uh, we can have a whole new set of legal duties. And if they can create a legal duty, j around tone at the top, they can probably create a legal duty around any best practice of a compliance program, whether that be the 10 hallmarks of an effective compliance program, the OECD, 13 good practices, uh, the UK Bribery Act, six principles of inadequate procedures, uh, really uh, anyone. But uh, this is something that really is new that I think we're going to have to watch.
1: Definitely. Um, So you usually bless us with um, a five part podcast every week. What was the new podcast that came on this week and uh, what is the concern?
0: So Jay, this week I had a a five part uh, podcast series, um, which was sponsored by Hanzo and our good friend, Sean Friedland, uh, he and his marketing team. We took a look at the use of AI uh, and data analytics and compliance investigations. We looked at the current state of investigations using AI and web-based evidence, overcoming investigative challenges, improving investigative efficiencies and where investigations are headed. Uh, it's available on all my sites. Uh, I am extraordinarily pleased to announce that the uh, I've joined the C Suite Radio Network a business podcast network. So it's also available, uh, there. And then as a perhaps uh, if I could give a teaser, Jay, next week's series is going to have your colleague, uh, your uh, AMI colleague, Eric Feldman. And we're going to take a very deep dive into the 2000, the evaluation of corporate compliance programs 2019 guidance released by the Department of Justice in April of this year. It's going to be a, a great exploration. Eric really hit this one out of the ballpark and I'm very excited about it. So, um, uh, if you're listening to this podcast and you want to take a deep dive into the 2019 guidance, definitely check out next week. It'll post uh, Monday through Friday on the FCPA Compliance Report. It goes up uh, on iTunes, Spotify, Megaphone um, all Monday night or Monday morning around midnight, so you can download and and binge listen.
1: So uh, speaking about Beantown and that Sitco sign, we're going to be there in a couple of weeks. What's bringing us to Boston?
0: So we got a lot going on, Jay. Uh, I'm joined uh, by you and a couple of uh, uh, colleagues for a two-day master class. Uh, we've just gotten a new location that uh, we'll put in the to, to show notes on June 11 and 12. Uh, listeners who uh, uh, sign up uh, through this podcast, they get a complimentary copy of my book, The Compliance Handbook. Uh, we've got links to registration and information. And then on Thursday, June thirteenth, I hope uh you can join myself, uh Jay's colleagues, Eric Feldman and Vin Diciani and Jay at a round table in Boston where we we take a deep dive into the new guidance. So uh you'll have a chance to really hear Eric expand upon his remarks from the uh from the podcast series. And we once again we've linked to the uh registration and information in our show notes.
1: Great. So uh, do you want to gloat a little bit more about the Astros or did you get it all out in the opening?
0: You mean the team with the best record in baseball? No, Jay, I'm, I'm pretty low-key about such things. And, you know, I don't really think uh, you really should gloat when your team is, is hammering everyone else because it makes everyone else just, you know, feel so small. And, uh, you know, it's just that's not my style to really talk about the Astros being the best team in baseball. I'm just going to enjoy it.
1: Okay. So um, I think that does it. Uh, on behalf of Tom Fox, the compliance evangelist, and myself, Jay Rose and Mr. Monitor, we'd like to thank you for joining us for this week in FCPA, episode 156 for the week ending May 31st, 2019, the Farewell to May edition. Have a great weekend, and we'll be back in touch with you next week.
0: Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of This Week in FCPA. I hope you will join Jay and I uh, at one of the events in Boston. Once again, if you would like to attend the master class and you listen to this podcast, you can get a free copy of my seminal book, The Compliance Handbook, if you attend. Registration information is in the show notes. Also, uh, Affiliated monitors will be sponsoring a roundtable on Wednesday, June 13th. We will link to that in the show notes as well. This is Tom Fox. I hope you've enjoyed this episode, and I hope you'll join Jay and I again next week where we take a look at some of next week's top stories in compliance and ethics. This Week in FCPA is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network and C-Suite Radio. Thank you for listening.